Good morning to everyone. It's great to be back with you. Laura and I had a, a good visit to Germany. Uh, we're planning a missions morning, January 13th, a missions morning here, 9 o'clock. And so you'll hear more of uh, what's happening in Germany at that time. The believers in Wetzlar do send their warmest greetings. But mark that date on your calendar and I'll fill you in on what our sister church in Wetzlar is in the midst of doing. And that morning we'll also hear from the team that just returned from Guatemala and, uh, and what's going on there with the orphanage. If you're on Facebook, you saw some wonderful pictures this past week of the team uh, caring for those orphans, orphans and uh, painting the murals and a Rick Stone sleeping. Uh, anybody else pick up on that? He's in various postures of sleep in most of those pictures. I'll have words with Rick later. Don't worry about that. But uh, you come, you come on, uh, on January the 13th at 9 o'clock, a missions morning. And among other things, we'll uh, update everyone on what's going on in Germany and what's happening in, in Guatemala. For now, turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark. We're in chapter 11, but I want to begin in chapter 1. Again, we're in chapter 11. But we're going to begin back in chapter 1. And just follow along as I read the the very first verse. Uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. He states it clearly. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It begs two questions. Number one, who is Jesus Christ? He tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. And in the first eight chapters, he proves it. How? By demonstrating uh, the authority of the Lord Jesus. Firstly, his judicial authority. That is, his authority to forgive sins. Uh, Secondly, his creational authority. That is, his authority to heal diseases, cast out demons, calm the storm. Thirdly, his scriptural authority. That is, his lordship over the Sabbath and his lordship, all of all scripture, and its fulfillment and culmination in him. And Mark really brings this this wonderful description of Christ's sonship to a head, to a climax in the ninth chapter, where he describes for us Christ's transfiguration. And so up the mountaintop, the Lord Jesus goes, and there he is transfigured. That is, the veil of his humanity is removed temporarily, and we behold his resplendent glory. And he becomes dazzling white, and that cloud descends. And we hear the Father declare in certain terms, uh, this is my beloved Son. There's the answer to that first question, who is Jesus Christ? The second question, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second question that statement uh, gives rise to is this, what is the gospel? Uh, What is this gospel which the Lord Jesus declares? We can sum it up as follows. And this is the testimony of the book of Mark in its entirety. Here is the gospel. Here is the good news. God saves sinners through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's great news. The gospel. God saves sinners through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself points us down that road. Turn with me, for example, to chapter 8. We're still in the book of Mark. We're going to make our way to chapter 11 eventually. But for now, chapter 8, look at what we read in verse 31. 
he began to teach them that the Son of Man, it's a reference to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Move with me into chapter 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise again. Move with me now into chapter 10, verse 33. He's preaching, he's saying to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Three times, Jesus expresses it in the most explicit terms possible. I am here for one reason, one reason alone. I have a divinely appointed rendezvous with death in Jerusalem. I have come to die, to be killed, crucified, and I have come to rise again. Why? He tells us at the end of chapter 10, he tells us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, that's his death, to give his life as what? A ransom. A ransom is the purchasing price to set free those who are in bondage. We are in bondage to our sin. We are in bondage to the penalty of our sin, eternal condemnation. But the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for instead of, on behalf of. That's the good news. That is the gospel. God saves sinners from death through Jesus' substitutionary Death. Friend, understand, our bondage is cosmic in magnitude. Therefore, the ransom must be cosmic in magnitude. The very Son of God. He was punished that we might be pardoned. He was condemned that we might be justified. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He was forsaken that we might be welcomed. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We come now to chapter 11. We've arrived finally at the Passion Week. The ministry of the Lord Jesus with his disciples, more or less, is drawing to a close. And now he has seven days prior to his crucifixion. And he has arrived at the city of Jerusalem. Follow along as I read the first 19 verses for us. Again, that's Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. 
And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not yet the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. (coughs) Pardon me. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The verses we have just read naturally divide into two sections. Each section focuses on a visit to the temple in Jerusalem. And so the first section is really verses 1 through 11. Jesus visits the temple in Jerusalem. And the second section begins in verse 12, concludes in verse 19. Jesus visits the temple in Jerusalem. Two separate visits occurring on two separate days. So two sections. But the Lord Jesus is portrayed very differently in each section. And this is what I want us to notice. And so look with me again at the first section, namely verses 1 through 11, what happens. Jesus is approaching the towns of Bethphage and Bethany. He's approaching Jerusalem. And so he says to his disciples, you go into that nearby village there, that nearby city, you'll find a colt. Don't think of a horse. This is, this is, the, this is a young donkey. That's what is meant here by a colt, a young donkey. You're going to find it tied up. Bring it to me. The disciples dutifully go. They return with this colt, this young, young donkey. They put their cloaks on top of it. The Lord Jesus sits upon it, and he rides this donkey into the city of Jerusalem, this young donkey. Uh, if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, you might remember uh, Gandalf's, is it Shadowfax, his mighty horse. Uh, this isn't a mighty horse. Uh, this isn't an awe-inspiring horse. This isn't a powerful horse. This isn't some monster ready for battle. This is some young, young donkey. The feet of the Lord Jesus are literally dragging upon the ground. This is what he mounts to ride triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. But get this. It is the fulfillment of prophecy. Over 500 years earlier, Zechariah penned and stated it most clearly, the ninth chapter of the book of Zechariah, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Lord Jesus enters the temple. He looks around. 
He examines what's going on, bites his tongue. It's late. They return to the town of Bethany. That's visit number one. That is section number one. In the second section, beginning in verse 12, it concludes again in verse 19. Jesus again visits the temple. But this time, very different what occurs here. And so they embark, they leave Bethany in the morning. He's hungry at a distance. Verse 13, what does he notice? He sees a fig tree in leaf. Now important for us to grasp, fig trees actually bear two kinds of fruit. Obviously they bear what? Figs. They also bear something that is called nodules, N-O-D-U-L-E-S. These are just small little nodules that appear in a fig tree. Both kinds of fruit are edible. When the fig tree has leaves, it means that there are also nodules ripe for eating. This is what the Lord Jesus is looking for. This is what he expects to find when he goes to this fig tree. There aren't any nodules despite all of these leaves, despite this evidence of health, despite this evidence of life, there is no visible fruit. And so what does the Lord Jesus do? He curses it. Well, that's odd. It has nothing to do with anything. Let's move on. It has everything to do with everything. Why? If this is a case of symbolic action. What do I mean by that? In this action, the Lord Jesus is pointing to symbolizing something else. What? The fig tree stands for, in the Old Testament, we see it throughout, stands for the nation of Israel. And the Lord Jesus comes to this fig tree to inspect it. What has he just done on the previous day? He has entered Jerusalem. He has gone to the temple And he has had a good look around. And what has he noticed? Lots of leaves. A beehive of activity. Lots going on. But as he has examined the temple, the center, the center of Israelite worship, what hasn't he found? Fruit. And a curse is coming. It is prefigured now with this fig tree. He comes to the fig tree. The expectation is where there are leaves, there is life. Where there is life, there is health. And there will be these nodules, fruit. There is nothing. Israel is just like this. It has the appearance of life, but it is actually dead. It has the external forms of religion, but there is no essential vitality. And he curses the fig tree as a prelude to what is coming. He enters the city of Jerusalem again, into the temple he goes. He doesn't just have a look around. What happens? He fashions for himself a whip. Mark doesn't tell us that. Matthew, Luke, they add other details. And he begins to overturn the tables and chairs. He begins to chase people out of the temple. He begins to prevent, physically prevent people from bringing their cattle and other animals through the temple. You see, what he witnesses is, 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 is this, this exchanging of cattle, this exchanging of money, this, this, this commercial enterprise which had overrun the temple. And there was all of this activity, there was all of this busyness, there were all of these external forms of religion and rites and traditions, but there was no longer any vi. What is the response to what Jesus does? Look at verse 18. The response is twofold. Chief priests and scribes, in other words, they're the religious leaders. They hear of it. What's their response? They're seeking a way to destroy him. Why? For they fear him. Second response, the crowd. The crowd is astonished at his teaching. Now the section ends. The curtain closes, if you like. When evening came, verse 19, they went out of 
the city. You got it. Two sections. Both focusing on a visit to the temple. What do these two incidents, these two sections, what do these verses teach us? In other words, as we read these verses and as we understand the content, the question we need to ask is this. What do we see? What do we see? That's the question I want us to wrestle with. I'm going to give you a threefold answer in a moment. Before we get there, just keep that question in view. What do we see? We understand section one, section two. Visit number one, visit number two. Marked contrast between the attitude of the Lord Jesus in these two visits. Okay, We see that. We see where we're going. The question is, what do we see? Step over here. Because the question I want to just ask for a moment is this. Friend. What is on your mind? What is on your mind? I ask that for a number of reasons. First reason I ask that is because many of us are plagued with problems. Uh, there are problems in the home. There are marital problems. There are problems in the workplace. There are problems with health. And we have problems on top of problems. These things should occupy our thoughts to a certain degree. And, and these things should perplex us to a certain degree. And for many of us, that's where, that's where our minds are right now. Some of us, our minds are in Connecticut, right? And so they should be. Uh, that's a terrible uh, tragedy, atrocity what has transpired there. I spoke to it in the adult Sunday school. If that is something that that is on your mind, that's recorded, that's videotaped, that'll be on the church website in a few days. You go, you you listen to it, I pray the Lord will will bless that to you. Some of us, our minds are on Christmas. Hate it or love it, it consumes us, doesn't it? And we get all perplexed about it, all busy and and hot and bothered and and a whole host of other things. And so right now, our minds, undoubtedly, if your mind is anything like my mind, is going in so many different directions and thinking of so many different things. I want you just to draw in and just remember the words in that wonderful little children's chorus we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. Do you remember that little admonition in that children's chorus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. Now with that word of admonition, encouragement, step back over here. And let me repeat the essential question that we want to wrestle with as as we make our way through this text. It is this, what do we see of the Lord Jesus in these verses? First thing we see is this, it's clearly evident, we see who Jesus is. We are given a wonderful study in contrasts when it comes to the perfect, blameless, spotless character of Jesus Christ. And so in section number one, we see the Lord Jesus mounted on this young donkey entering Jerusalem. We hear the cry of the crowds. Zechariah's prophecy resonates in our minds. And what do we see? We see the humility of Jesus. Do we not? We see Jesus, the Lamb. We see his gentleness and we see his But now we move to the second section. In the second visit, we no longer see the Lamb. We no longer see His humility. We no longer see His gentleness. And we no longer see His gentleness. What do we behold now? His severity. We behold His anger. And we see His 
righteous indignation as he physically ushers these people out of his father's house. Can you imagine that scene? Running through those doors and overturning these chairs, pushing this pulpit right over, swinging a whip above his head, screaming, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. And so in the first section, this first visit to the temple, we see the lamb. Such wonderful humility, right? In the second visit to the temple, we see the lion, severity. And in both, there is no contradiction. There is perfect harmony. There is perfect symmetry as we behold a man who is consumed primarily with the glory of God. His humility, perfect humility. His perfect severity. His meekness and his gentleness his anger and his indignation, we behold the Lamb who is a lion. I'm under no delusions. Most people do not want to hear that today. They have no problem with the Lamb part. They like the meek and lowly Jesus, the semi-effeminate Jesus. But any talk of Jesus as a lion, any talk of Jesus as angry, any talk of his righteous indignation. Uh, people don't find that too, too attractive. J.I. Packer, he, a- he asked this question, Do you believe in a God, Jesus Christ, who acts as our judge? Uh, many people do not. Speak to them of God as a father, a friend, a helper. One who loves us despite all our weakness and folly and sin. And their faces light up. But speak to them of God as a judge, and they frown and shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. But few things are more strongly stressed in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. Jesus, the Son of God, he is the Lamb who is a lion. People don't want to hear it. They want his humility to drown his severity. They want his kindness to eclipse his righteousness. They demand that his mercy veil his anger. But that is not who Jesus is. We see him clearly in this passage. We see he is the lamb who is alive. Now here's the thing we must grasp, friend. It is simply this. When we approach the Lord Jesus Christ... In poverty of spirit, do you know who we find? Do you know who we encounter? It is the Lamb. When we approach Jesus Christ in any other fashion, any other way, do you know who we find? It is the Lion. Jesus Christ, by his death, by his giving his life as a ransom for us, he has turned away the anger of God. If we fail to approach him in faith, if we fail to approach him in humility, if we fail to approach him in brokenness, in poverty of spirit, we encounter that righteous judge, that lion. But when we are weary and heavy laden, burdened by the weight of our sin, when we come to him in meekness and gentleness, when we come to him marked and characterized by that poverty of spirit, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, who do we find? We find the Lamb. Perfect symmetry, perfect 
harmony, humility, and severity, the lamb who is the lion. Now, let me just insert another thought here. Let me see how time is going. Somewhat related, important, but just, just step over here for a moment because I think it's extremely important. When we think of this perfect symmetry and harmony in the character of the Lord Jesus, we see what we're to be like, don't we? We think these two are antithetical, severity and humility. We think they're diametrically opposed. They are not. When we're transformed by the gospel and when we're fixed upon the glory of God, these two coexist in perfect harmony and symmetry. We see what we are to be like in humility and meekness and gentleness. And we see what our attitude is to be like towards sin and those things which displease God. There is to be severity. That is Christian character. Let me take a step further because I think it's important for us to hear this in our day. In the Lord Jesus, we have a wonderful picture not only of of the true nature of Christian character, but of actually what it means to be a man. Men, you want to know what it means to be a man? Don't look at that linebacker on the Dallas Cowboys. Don't look at that rock star. Don't look at all of these things, these ideas concerning manhood that are shoved down our throats today. You want to know what it means to be a man. You want to know what biblical manhood is. Look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a perfect Man, you see, in our society, we vacillate, we fluctuate between two extremes. At times, men, manhood is portrayed as what? Some sort of effeminate, some effeminate wimp, very passive. At other times in our society, we vacillate to the other extreme, where men are portrayed as what? Some unthinking behemoth, brute, very aggressive, too much testosterone. And these are the two images we have of manhood in our society. Both are false because both both are divorced from Scripture. Both are wrenched from the gospel, and neither has the glory of God in view. Man, you want to know what it means to be a man? Look at the Lord Jesus. And there we see this. Again, let me use that expression. Perfect symmetry and perfect harmony between humility and severity. Humility that is marked by gentleness and meekness, severity, anger, and righteous indignation when it comes to those things which are displeasing in God's sight. There's biblical manhood for all of us. There's Christian character and what it means to imitate and emulate the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all of us, there's the essence of the gospel, that Jesus is the lamb who is a lion. You will find him. You will encounter him either as the lamb as we approach him in poverty of spirit Come to him in any other way, and we find the lion. Second thing we see is this. We behold what Jesus hates, despises. We see what nauseates the Lord Jesus upon his second visit to the temple. It is man-made religion. Uh, Michael Card, uh, decades, couple, probably a couple decades ago now, Christian musician, He penned a song and sings a song based on this text. And let me just read a few words, a stanza from that song. It sums it up wonderfully. The lamb is a lion who is roaring with rage at the empty religion that's filling their days. They'll flee from the hug of the carpenter's strong arm and come to know the scourging anger of the Lord. If you want to know what the Lord Jesus hates, if I want to know what it is he, he despises, I need look no further than these verses beginning in verse 12 and concluding in verse 19. If he hates anything, it is the external form of religion. If he despises anything, 
It is man-made religion. Why? It bears four marks. These are made clear in verses 17 and 18. The first mark is this. It corrupts man-made religion. It corrupts the worship of God. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? A house of prayer. Now think again of the context. Jesus has just had that encounter with the fig tree. And what's he found? Lots of leaves, no fruit. It's a case of symbolic action. The tree points to Israel. It points to Israel's spiritually barren religion. It points to what is transpiring and happening in the confines of the temple. It points to the fact that there is busyness that there is the appearance of religiosity, but in actual fact they have corrupted the worship of God. We need to heed the warning here. We need to recognize that the same thing can happen with the church today. We must be clear in understanding that genuine religion is not about how prosperous we are. Genuine religion is not about how numerous we are. It is not about how formal we are, It is not about how creative we are. It is not about how busy we are. It is not about how successful we are. It is fixed on one thing and one thing alone. Worship. Look at that statement again in verse 17. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Show me a people. Show me a church where there is a frenzy of activity and busyness where there is a multitude of programs and planning activity, and yet a church that is devoid of prayer, and I will show you a man-made religion, and I will show you something that the Lord Jesus despises. He despises the external forms of religion. He despises man-made religion. He is looking for a vital relationship a relationship that is expressed and primarily preoccupied with worship, with prayer. Second mark of man-made religion is this. It obscures the truth of God. Look again at verse 17. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? This is fascinating. For all the nations. Who's there primarily? It's the Jews. And yet Israel's religion, and the temple in particular, had this ultimate purpose. It was actually to stand as as a light post, shining the way, directing the nations, the Gentiles, to God. That was its ultimate purpose. It was established, and the nation was called to be a lighthouse and a testimony to all the surrounding Gentiles. But what had happened? Rather than pointing the nations to God, Israel, the Jews, actually obscured the nation's sight of God. They were called to be a testimony. They were called to declare the truth of God. But in actual fact, their religion had degenerated to such a degree that they obscured the truth of God. We must heed the warning. We must heed the warning in our own day. And ensure that in our proclamation of the truth, we are not obscuring the word of God. We hear it so often today. Let me give you some examples. We hear sin is a self-defeating behavior. 
We hear the gospel is a self-help recipe. We hear that truth is determined by intuition and emotion. We hear that happiness is the most important thing in life. As one preacher says, one of the greatest problems among evangelicals today is that they want a relationship and expect a relationship with Christ without any obligations. And for the most part, the church gives it to them. A relationship with Christ without any demands. An experience without any absolutes. A community without any boundaries. Just give me the gospel without any obligations. And the church, to a great extent, obscures the truth of God. And rather than pointing to God and revealing the way to God through a clear proclamation of the gospel, has obscured it to such a degree that people no longer hear nor recognize the truth. Third mark of this man-made religion, very evident in verse 17, it markets the temple. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of? robbers. And so as the Lord Jesus enters the temple, what does he find? He finds these merchants selling animals. Why? As sacrifices. Why? Well, people come from all over Israel. It's a long journey. Too difficult to bring their own animals from home. It's much easier just to buy them there in the temple. And so these merchants have set up their tables. They have all these animals. It's a little petting zoo. And they're selling these animals, tens of thousands of them, for sacrifices. The only thing is, they know they've got these people right where they want them. They can charge whatever prices they want. Not only are there these merchants who are selling animals, but there are merchants who are changing money. Why? Because Roman coinage has what on it? The emperor. Well, the emperor, that pagan, any image of him is not allowed in the confines of the temple. So they have to change their money into money which is acceptable in the temple before they can purchase those sacrifices, those animals which they need to sacrifice to God. An extortion is running rampant. And it's just one big circus. It's just this one big opportunistic endeavor to, to get into people's pockets. They have commercialized the entire religion, marketing the truth of God. That's a warning we need to hear today, the commercialization of the church. The commercialization or marketization of the temple. Are we merely another? Is evangelicalism merely become another demographic that is to be targeted by our opportunistic uh, so-called pietist uh, entrepreneurs. We have all our same paraphernalia. We have our musicians and our rock stars and our books and our videos and, and, and everything else. We have an assortment of coffee mugs and T-shirts all targeting what? Evangelicals. James Montgomery Boyce points us down this road with the following example. He says, an older man was in a Christian bookstore several months ago. And he noticed WWJD caps for sale at the checkout center counter. They cost $12.95. He asked what WWJD meant. The sales girl answered sweetly, that means what would Jesus do? The old man looked at the cap a bit longer then said, I don't think Jesus would spend $12.95 for that cap. <laughs> Have we commercialized the house of God and the people of God? We could spend all day on this. Has the church itself simply become a commodity? It's like a drive-in at McDonald's right, or Sonic or something where people just kind of show up and the basis on whether or not they show up or continue to show up is simply the answer to this question, what does it do for me? I get sick to my stomach 
when people talk about a wonderful worship experience. Worship isn't an experience. Worship is the exaltation of the Almighty God. We do not come to church to be entertained. We, we do not gather as the people of God with that question, what's in it for me? What does this do for me? What do I get out of this? Has the church simply become another commodity where we hope it provides some kind of meaning to help me deal with my problems? We hope it will buttress my self-image. We hope it will instill some level or measure of morality in my children. We hope it meets my needs as I define my needs and I put my needs out there in the marketplace. And the church now is simply part of the marketplace. And the calling of the church is to ensure that it is meeting my felt needs. Have we commercialized the church? The fourth mark of this man-made religion is this. It ignores the word of God. It comes out in verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it. So they've heard what the Lord Jesus is saying and what he is doing. They hear it. And they are seeking a way to destroy him. And so rather than, rather than to hear Christ's critique, rather than take to heart the Old Testament quotations from Isaiah and Jeremiah, which is what we have in verse 17, rather to hear than hear and face and wrestle with what the Lord Jesus is actually saying, what is their response? They dismiss it. Their enmity is fixed on him. And their objective now is to destroy him, remove him out of the way. In Proverbs 13, 13, we read, Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. It corrupts the worship of God. My house shall be called a house of prayer. It obscures the truth of God. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. It markets the temple of God. You have made it a den of robbers. And it ignores the word of God. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. When faced with this man-mage external religion, the lamb becomes a lion. And we see his severity. We see his anger. We see his righteous indignation. I sometimes wonder if the Lord Jesus were to, were to walk on the scene today here in, in North America and just visit churches, I don't know, over the course of a year and see what's going on. What do you think his response would be? I dare say he would make a big whip for himself. And he would start kicking over some pulpits. And he would start overturning some chairs. And he would start crying out, My Father's house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers. The lamb becomes a lion. Third thing we see in these verses is precious. We see why Jesus comes. We see why he comes. He takes us back up into the first section, his first visit to the temple. There he is mounted on that young donkey. There he enters Jerusalem, marked by gentleness and meekness and humility. The people are placing those branches and garments and cloaks before him along the roadway. And look at what we see in verse 9. Those who went before 
And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is ripped out of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The vast majority of them are clueless. They don't have any idea what they're saying. And yet in the context of that psalm, we have the arrival of the Son of David, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, who will secure the salvation of his people. That word, Hosanna, do you know what it means? Save us, O Lord. I don't think they really got it, the vast majority of them. Do we get it? Save us, O Lord. Here is the Son of David, the King. Riding, entering the city, gentle and meek, mounted upon a young colt. Why? Because he did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see the lamb. Yes, he who is the king, but we see the lamb. We see the lamb being led to the slaughter. Friend, does that move you? Many things move us. Problems we're wrestling with move us, and they should. I'm not saying they shouldn't. <coughs> Tragedies in Connecticut, that moves us, and it should move us deeply. Christmas, I guess on some level, it moves us. I'm trying the question Does the cross move us? As we see the Lamb who is a lion coming to give himself at Calvary's cross as a ransom to purchase the salvation of his people, are we moved? Are we moved by the injustice? Are we moved by the betrayal? Are we moved by the brutality? Are we moved by his meekness? Are we moved by his faithfulness? Are we moved by his loving kindness? One preacher writes, I'm afraid that we develop such deadly familiarity with the words of Scripture that they lose their impact on us. We say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, but we neither gasp nor weep. We reel off similar verses with little or no emotion. We preach this truth so matter-of-factly that it does not bring us or our listeners to their knees. We are guilty of what someone called the curse of dry-eyed Christianity. Constantly, we need to come back to the awesome reality that it was our Savior God who died. Oh, how that should uh, grip us. Stir up such a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness. How it should cause us to abound in love and increase in love for, for the Lord Jesus Christ. How it should cause us to be vigilant in our battle and our struggle with sin. How it should compel us to give ourselves in loving others and serving others. How it should enable us and strengthen us to persevere in the midst of afflictions and, and trials and tribulations. As we're brought daily to the cross, as we're brought daily to this, this wonderful truth, this wonderful reality, that the Son of God has given himself for us. That the mighty King, Again, in the words of chapter 10, verse 45, he did not come to be served. He had every right to be served, every right to demand it. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. 
How? He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Our Father, we do pray that you would awaken us afresh to these wonderful truths. We pray that we would take seriously now your word, its lessons, its truths, its admonitions and warnings and promises. We pray that you would cause us daily and repeatedly to examine ourselves, our own lives, in the light of your word. May we not be caught napping. May we not be caught apathetic. May we not be guilty of indifference. But as we come to the cross daily, and as we come to this great reality that Jesus gave himself up for us daily, may our joy be renewed. May our strength be reinvigorated. May our hope be strengthened and fixed on him. We pray, our Father, that as we await that great inheritance which he has purchased for us, that you would strengthen us daily by your Spirit. We thank you for each and every blessing. We give you praise for each and every mercy. And pray now that you bless this word that we have heard to our hearts. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.